Awesome, man. I'm excited to uh, share with you guys as I am, you know, just with any opportunity to uh, just stand in front of you guys and, and bring the word, you know. I'm grateful for any opportunity to do that. But uh, some of you may have saw, you know, I had to kind of stand over here. Number one, you know, it's because it's a little warm. A little warm in here. I had to call an audible. Have Matt come turn the heater off. Don't know what's going on. The heater really does whatever it wants in this house. Um, either it's like, you know, God is like trying to show us what hell is going to feel like or we're freezing. Um, but there's another reason why I kind of stepped over there, and that's because my brother Alex, he kind of just needs a whole row to worship, you know what I mean? He, uh, you know, like when I'm zoning in, I can't be, I can't be watching out for windmill punches and stuff coming coming from my left. You know, he came down here, he didn't do his hair or nothing, so you know he's ready for whatever. It's like somebody with black air forces, you know what I mean? Like they're just sus. I'm just playing. Alex knows. I love him. Just from a six foot distance, amen? No, man, but, uh, you know, I'm just so honored, man. You know, um, even last week, I'm trying to remember the song, but we talked about, you know, uh, loving God, loving our, uh, ourselves, and loving our neighbor, you know? And um, the, the song that we sang for the altar call was just, like, so on point, and Greg and I don't talk, you know what I mean? We don't set up um, the worship set and stuff. Like, we, I, I just, I believe in, you know, letting God have his way, and, and that serving as a level of confirmation, you know, and how fitting, you know, that uh, that we would end our time of worship just singing, lead me to your heart, lead me to your heart, because this morning I want to talk to you guys about what it means to be a man after God's own heart. We just thank God for his confirmation and what he wants to do in this place. Come on, can we thank God for what he wants to do in this place? God, have your way, have your way in this time, Lord. We just open up our hearts, our minds, and our ears to what you want to do, Lord God. We thank you, God, for who you are, for your faithfulness, Lord God, and that if we could even gather in this way, God, and that you would come down and meet with us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, last night I was kind of, um, I went up to, I wanted to go to all the rooms, but I ended up getting stuck in D room um, during room devotion. And I was talking to some of the brothers about just what I was sharing uh, today. And one of the guys is like, man, you just need one verse. And I won't name him. But, uh, I thought it was funny because we're about to look at like over 20 chapters of scripture that I kind of boiled down. You know, I like to, to uh, let the Bible speak for itself. And, and when I talk about um, an individual, like for an example for today, um, we talked, I'm going to talk about Saul, who was the first king uh, before David. And I want to look at his whole life because I don't want you to think, you know what I mean, that like I'm not. I'm just picking and choosing and manipulating. Like, I'm doing it to provide you guys with the full picture here, you know, to uh, just kind of hear for yourself, you know, what God is showing us through the story. But uh, before I get into the story of Saul, man, I, I, just, I just wanted to uh, preface, you know, the word today by saying it's just, like, so heavy in my heart to, like, see everybody flourish to their God-given potential, you know, because I believe, you know, that the, the life and that what God has intended for you guys is so much greater than, you know, we could even like wrap our mind around. And the reason I believe that is because I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in plenty of men's lives that like just set their face on God and go after the things of God, you know. So when I read this Bible, I read it with like this intentionality, man, that like we can get, we can do this, you know what I mean, like, this is, like, an achievable thing, you know what I mean, and I, I just hope that uh, we can go into the word today as, with that heart, with that kind of mentality, like, man, I want to get 
there. I want to get to that level of flourishing, you know what I mean, in, in our relationships with one another, in our relationship with God. It's almost like a part two of last week. It's just funny how God did that. But, um, you know, I want to talk about offense, but offense isn't like the main thing I want to talk about. But I want to share a story with you that, that the depth that offense will take you, you know, in the life of Saul. And I want to focus on, you know, what it means to be a man after God's own heart, which is the key to flourishing in this life. You know, and a part of flourishing, and I, I'm, I'm using that word a lot more in my vocabulary because of my psychology class, once again, um, you know, the goal of counseling, they, they like on an educational level, on a professional level, a counselor, a therapist, someone like a life coach, they're called a helping professional. Their profession is to help people, right? And helping people is leading them to a place of flourishing, you know, like leading them in a way that, that facilitates life transformation, right? So when I say, um, like flourishing and these things like that's that's the intention behind it is to like really get everything that God has for us you know and a part of that is learning how to live in a manner that reflects God's intention for society for our relationships for everything right and you know um, one of the things that my professor did in the class was you know sometimes to learn what we need to do we need to learn what we need not to do, <laughs> right? And, um, you know, she's kind of, we're, we're about halfway through the course, and now that all the little technicalities and, like, the grammar stuff she was picking on me about, like I told you guys last time, that stuff's out of the way. So she's, like, really just digging into the textbooks and stuff and, like, showing us what it means. But she did an interesting thing. She said, I want you to look at these three examples and it's three people who went to a, a, an office of a helping professional for help, right? And see what they did wrong. Tell me what they did wrong. And in the same way, we're going to look at Saul's life and we're going to look at what he did wrong so that we know what to do right. There's this, this contrast between Saul and David, you know, that I think is just an awesome, awesome message that God wants to speak to us this morning. But anyways, back on track, offense. I want to talk about offense and just give you kind of like a preface, you know, before we get into this Saul story. Offense is one of the many traps that the enemy sets for us. If you, I'm sure some of you guys in this room, myself included, we actually have a curriculum, you know, solely dealing with offense. It's called the bait of Satan. Offense is a bait that Satan puts out for believers to get them to totally block off the people in their life, to block off reasoning in their life, a sound mind, accountability, and leave us just to be totally easy to pick off on our own. Offense defined by researchers is a blow to someone's honor. The feeling of injustice or feeling like a victim, insecurity, jealousy, oftentimes are at the root of offense. And, you know, God often speaks about the troubles that we will face, and he urges us to be free from offense. And I wanted to share a couple verses with you guys, um, just to kind of, once again, set the foundation for our story here. The first one is 1 Peter 3, 13 and 18. And if you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. Um, 1 Peter 3, starting verse 13. And I want you to keep in mind that when these guys speak of suffering, I mean, they're literally being faced with, like, death and being crucified and, like, all types of, like, horrible things that none of us even come close to. So let's just keep that in perspective, that the suffering that we deal with is like a drop in the bucket, compared to this verse. And look how this verse speaks about suffering, right? Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and made, but made alive in the spirit. Next one, Romans chapter 8, great chapter, verse 18. 18 to 21, excuse me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. In some uh, translations say the creation was subjected to frustration. I know I've been subjected to some frustration. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And that freedom and glory that this verse is talking about is freedom from offense, to live free without condition, to love unconditionally. But we could see here in the text, you know, that life isn't always going to be fair. And you have to have a biblical perspective. You have to dig into the word to be able to see the bigger picture when it comes to this kind of thing. A carnal perspective will have you looking down in front of you and looking at every little thing that's wrong. It'll have you looking at everything that's not working out. It'll have you looking at every little thing that you can complain about. But a biblical perspective will say, what is this teaching me right now? What is God trying to show me through this situation? Can I share another verse with you guys? This is a real banger right here. And this is the straight up Bible. So let it talk for itself. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We get so caught on offense, but look how serious God is about this, this matter. How important loving one another is to God. You know, community, how important community is to God, how important fellowship is to God. You know, we see this whole corona thing going on, and it's like an attack on, on fellowship. And people are designed to be able to fellowship with one another. And everybody has that one person that they can't stand. As a matter of fact, I want you to look no, no, I'm kidding. Um, think about them. Think about them right now, seriously. And then bring them in the light of this verse right here. God says, if you hate your brother that you cannot see, that you can see, how can you love God that you cannot see? So can we put on a, a biblical perspective here? Like just as a community, like set our mind on doing this. Like instead of, you know, looking for the things that we can complain about, because there's always going to be things we can complain about. I can find 45 things in this room I can complain about. But can we just focus on having this kind of attitude? Look at situations that might bring us frustration and say, man, how can I love that person better? Because he's drawing something out of me. When you take offense, you put up offense. Offense that you put up to block out individuals you don't have patience for or people that have hurt you. Offense, like I shared, between reason 
yourself and reason, blocking you from a sound mind, a fence between accountability and people showing you the weak spots in your armor, a fence between fellowship and a fence between you and God. And the lie of offense is that you'll be totally boxed in, like I just showed you. I'm in my little safe zone now. Nobody could hurt me. Nobody could bother me. Nobody can inconvenience me. I don't have to deal with people that are an inconvenience to me. But we open ourselves to just get picked off like nothing when we're totally isolated. It's much harder for the devil to try to get somebody who's part of the body, who's flourishing, who has brothers locked in arms, who's having people show them the weak spots in their armor, holding them accountable to different things, praying for them, encouraging them. It's much harder to pick somebody off who's in right relationship with the people that are around them. And this is why we have to overlook offense. Because we can't say we love God and we can't say we're men after God's own heart if we can't look past the fence to see the bigger picture and the greater purpose and what God is bringing you through. So with that being said, I want to dig into the story of Saul here. And I want, I'm going to fire through it, and you can go and fact check me and read behind me. You know, I'm, I'm just sharing Saul's story. What's, in, what's important for us today in light of this message in Saul's story. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you want to begin to open up there, I wanted to come up with like some kind of crafty name for my sermon, like Better Call Saul or something. <laughs> you know, uh, but I don't got nothing for you guys. I'm the worst with that kind of stuff. You know, um, Israel at that time is just coming out of the era of the judges, right? I shared with you guys about Samson not too long ago, and Samson was a judge, and that was kind of how Israel was being ruled. Israel always had people in leadership positions, but God was their king. And what, what's happening here in this moment in time in the nation of Israel is that Israel is looking around to all the nations around them and seeing, these guys got a king, that guy got a king, this guy got a king, that nation has a king, we want a king. And Samuel, when this outcry is coming to him, we want a king, we want a king, he's, he's bothered by it because of those two things. Because God is supposed to be their king. And because they were just asking for a king to be like everybody else. But the outcry grew so large that Samuel said, fine, we'll give you a king. Chapter 9, you know, we begin to see the story of Saul. And it's a story where disobedience, personal ambition, and jealousy led him into this tormenting downward spiral that ended in a shameful death. It's really a tragic story. You know, um, we see these two contrasting figures. We have uh, Saul and David in the story. And like David is this man after God's own heart. But Saul fell terribly short of what it meant to be a king. You know? In, in chapter 9, we see... Um, Chapter 9, I'm going to fire through this and just read like my little highlighted things I have here. Chapter 9, verse 2, Saul is described as this handsome young man. He's tall. He just stands out. I mean, later on, we, uh, we literally see Samuel describe Saul as no one like he's ever seen. Nobody in, in all of the earth is like this guy, right? And when I read that, it made me think, you know, like, man, this guy... He's a, he's a good-looking guy, and he's, he's probably not used to being dishonored, you know? He's probably used to being the popular guy. He's probably used to being good with people, good with women, right? We can assume that because he's a, the Bible wouldn't go 
out of the way on his first appearance to say and make a point that he's this handsome guy, right? So he's not used to being dishonored. But just keep that in the memory bank. He went to go see Samuel. Samuel says, this is the guy that, that God is giving me, and he anoints him to be the king. At the time, he wasn't... Um, he was confirmed and made the king officially in the next chapter, in chapter 10, right? And that's when Samuel describes him as saying, there's no one like him in all the earth. At the end of chapter 10, we see that in verse 27, he went back home to his hometown, and the people of his hometown despised him after seeing that he had become king. And some people, man, when they see that you get that promotion, people that you came up with, people that known you for years and years and years, all of a sudden, they get a little salty. Maybe that's where that term came from, salty. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dwight. I had to do it. But God told Samuel, Saul is to be the king. Samuel made him the king of Israel in chapter 10. He reigned. He was 30 years old when he was made king, and he reigned for 42 years. Right? Chapter 11, we see Saul wins his first battle against this guy, Nahash, from Ammon. At the time, he was still, like, herding cattle. You know? He's got his cows out in the field, and he looks over, and these guys are starting up all kinds of ruckus. He says, hold up, goes and raises up an army and slaughters these dudes while they're sleeping. Um, and it wasn't until then that he was confirmed as the king, right? All of a sudden, all those people, right, that were, you know, feeling some type of way toward him, that they were, all these people that weren't feeling Saul were trying, were, were saying, who are those guys? Who are those guys that were saying he shouldn't be the king? Bring him over here so we could kill him. And he was confirmed as the king. They gassed him up. They said, where are those guys that doubted you, Saul? Bring him over here so we can kill him. You're our boy, Saul. Chapter 13, Saul gets hard-pressed fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are an enemy that plagued Israel for a long time. He acted in disobedience. What happened, in essence, is um, Saul had agreed with Samuel. He said, yo, seven days, meet me at this spot. We're going to offer up a sacrifice to God. Cool? Cool. Now, Samuel ran a little late. He was about three days late. And Saul started to just kind of fear and, and become insecure and all these things. And he saw that his men were beginning to scatter away from him and lose faith and lose courage. And what he did, he leaned on his own understanding, and he said, bring me the offerings. We're going to just do this thing. Right? And right after he finishes offering these sacrifices, Samuel rolls up and says, bro, what are you doing? <laughs> And the reason why this was such a, a grievous offense is because only a priest could offer a sacrifice to God. Like the Jewish people were so ritually bound in, in doing things certain ways, and it was like totally out of pocket, out of order for this dude to go and offer a sacrifice. Totally unacceptable. Right? So Samuel pulls up and says, Man, what are you doing? You've done a foolish thing. You've done a foolish thing. And he tells him, because he didn't respect the things of God, now your kingdom is not going to endure us all. And God judged him harshly in that moment. And we see this first charge against him. And just imagine, you know, what it, like what, what it would be like to continue to serve as king with that charge in the back of your mind. Your kingdom won't endure. And this is, begins just this, 
this unraveling of Saul with this first charge here. He didn't respect the things of God. You know, there's people that are called to be kings, right? So they're stewards. They're called to be stewards over much. But because they can't be faithful with the little things, because they don't respect the things of God, they can't be men after God's own heart. And God can't release everything he wants to release to them. So the Bible, this is where in the scripture, in chapter 14 of chapter, I'm sorry, in, in verse 14 of chapter 13, that famous verse comes in, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And he was talking about David. And, you know, we see throughout the story of David, because I want to focus on Saul, I want to just kind of go through these bullet points, you know, about what David did differently than Saul. Why he was characterized as a man after God's own heart. And first and foremost was the fact that he honored leaders even if they sucked. He honored leaders even if they sucked. Saul knew, David knew what it was like to be under a bad leader. I don't think nobody in this room knows what it's like to be under that kind of scrutiny. A man after God's own heart was willing to obey God completely. A man after God's own heart is willing to overlook offense. David had every reason to be offended with Saul. A man after God's own heart seeks God in everything and fears God and has a deep reverence for the things of God. And a man after God's own heart doesn't make compulsive decisions based off of personal emotions or ambitions. And lastly, a man after God's own heart suffers for righteousness' sake without complaining. Chapter 14, we see here in the verse, they, they won a great victory over the Philistines. And because Saul was so angry and so bent on, on revenge and destroying the Philistines, he made this decree that anybody who ate, he said everybody has to fast. Anybody who ate until we've totally destroyed the Philistines, may they be cursed. And this was a foolish thing, a foolish thing to do. He puts this curse in place, and it just led to more disobedience in his camp. Jonathan, his son, ate honey because he didn't, he didn't even hear his father Saul say the decree in the first place. Then all of his men just start going ballistic and cutting up animals and eating them while they still have the blood in them, which, again, was another horrible thing you know, for the Jewish people, totally out of line. So his foolish decision made from a place of emotion and personal ambition led his whole camp to be in sin. Chapter 15, and this is important for you guys to keep in mind for our story here. It's this chapter where the Lord rejects Saul as the king. We have these people come into the picture called the Amalekites. Amalekites come, they're, they're the descendants of Esau, Jacob and Esau. Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. And there are people that do not fear God. They're compared, and many Bible scholars believe that they're given as an illustration of our fleshly and carnal desires. Right? And God, let's read what the Lord says to Saul, and starting in verse chapter 2. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, Saul, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy them. Ricky, what does totally destroy them mean? RKO them. So... Should he leave anything at all after the fact? No, nothing. Okay. Totally destroy them. All that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women 
children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summons his men. Da 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 da. We look later on in the chapter, and what does Saul do? He took King Agag of the Amalekites alive. Verse eight, and then verse nine. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, and everything that was good. Saul disobeys again. He doesn't completely disobey God. He destroys 99.99%, right? Like the bottle of sanitizer says, kills 99.99% of germs, like that 0.01%, right? But he doesn't obey, he, he doesn't completely disobey God, but he doesn't completely obey God. He leaves King Agag alive and the livestock. And I want to tell you guys, and if you write something down, this is a good thing to write down right here. Partial obedience is still disobedience. God rejected him as the king in this chapter. And he says, I regret that I have made Saul the king to Samuel in verse 11. That's the second charge. Can you imagine now Saul's mental condition after feeling like he failed twice and having this spoken over him now? I regret that I made you the king. I reject you as king. Can you imagine having that in the back of your mind? Your kingdom won't endure, Saul. That probably haunted him in everything that he did. And that's this, out of that, that other well-known verse comes out in verse 22 of chapter 15. It says, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, to listen, is better than the fat of rams. So we continue on with the story here. Chapter 16. Chapter 16, God starts off the chapter here by in, in speaking to Samuel and says, Samuel, why are you still upset over Saul? I rejected him. Be on your way, he tells him. He leads him to David. He leads him to David, and David, again, is described as this handsome guy, and Samuel anoints him. God allows an evil spirit to torment Saul and pulls his spirit off of Saul. Fast forward into chapter 18. Saul continued to fear David. That's the title of the, title of the chapter, Saul's growing fear of David. This thing continued to haunt him as he saw David flourishing in front of him, as he saw that the Lord was with David. His contempt just continued to grow for him. David was just trying to serve God. He came from nothing. He was a shepherd. He played the lyre for Saul. It was like a little guitar. And um, we see in chapter 18 that uh, there's, they come up with this song, right? And I'm sure that this song bothered Saul so much. They would sing, Saul has slain his thousands. Chapter 7, uh, verse 7 in, verse, in chapter 18. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David, at this point, remember what I said about Saul being like that dude. He had never been subject to dishonor in, in this manner before. So up to this point, he had never he had never had to deal with these kind of feelings, right? As David is just coming up. At this point, he killed Goliath already as like this little frail boy, you know? And Saul just continues to grow in hatred and fear and offense by the minute. Saul fell victim to this offense and was trapped. He was stuck in the trap of offense. Saul 
later on in chapter 18, he calls David in the room and chucks a spear at him. I mean, that's a little awkward, you know? David's come in, hey, Saul, I got that. <laughs> Whoa, bro. Saul's standing there like, <laughs> oh, my, my bad. I was just doing some target practice. It's all good, man, you know? Um, he keeps on talking, and what does this guy Saul do? Throws another spear at him. <laughs> this guy's a little trigger happy with his spear. And it says David eluded him twice. You know? David eluded him twice. And then later on in the chapter, it, this, this whole thing, like, I, I look at Saul and the insanity, you know what I mean, that is set in in his life. He sees that David likes one of his daughters, so he offers to give him his daughter um, in marriage, thinking, okay, I'll make him my son-in-law, you know? Then he won't try to, you know, usurp me or whatever. So he does, makes him his son-in-law, and it doesn't really help. He just continues to get more angry and more angry and more angry at David, to the point where in chapter 19 now, Saul tries to kill David again. He chucked two spears at my boy. But in chapter 19, he goes into his house. Oh, I'm sorry. He, he threw another spear at him in this chapter too. Verse 10. He, uh, so this is the third time he's tried to throw a spear at David. Um, and then after he dodges three spears, his wife hides him in the room, sneaks him out the back window and says, listen, you got to go because my dad's going to come and try to kill you. Right? So David escapes. His wife puts um, like stuff in his bed and goat hair up by the top so it looks like he's in bed sick, and it allows him time to escape. Right? And that leaves us off at uh, chapter 20. In the next 10 chapters of this story are Saul chasing David back and forth, wasting the time and resources of the nation of Israel, all for his own motive, all because he was offended, all because he was jealous and insecure. And David, his heart, even when, when Saul wanted to give David his daughter, he said, who am I that I should be the son-in-law of the king? To show you how he honored this man. after He, he threw two spears at him and he said that. Right? So they're just going back and forth for 10 whole chapters. I don't even want to get into it, you know what I mean? Because you can read it for yourself. David has the opportunity to kill Saul. David's hiding in a cave, and Saul goes to relieve himself, the Bible says. So he sneaks up behind him, cuts the corner of his robe off. And as Saul's getting ready to leave the cave, I imagine David now, from the darkness in the depths of the cave, calls out to him, Saul, I could have killed you. Look down at your robe, he says. I cut the corner off of your robe while you were using the bathroom. And Saul looks to his boy to his left, and he says, yo, grab my spear real quick. <laughs> spear. Um, no, but seriously, it ends up in this, like, weird thing where, like, now they're having this dialogue back and forth in the cave. David's, like, off in the distance in the darkness, and Saul's, like, encouraging him. He's like, man, you're going to do good, bro. You're going to have the kingdom, and, like, and it's just, like, totally nuts to me. Later on, Saul, David has the opportunity to kill Saul again. He sneaks up to it. He sneaks into their camp while they're sleeping. But this time, David's a smart guy. He grabbed his spear. <laughs> he grabs his spear and takes it out of the camp, right, and his water bottle. And he calls again from the distance and says, look, Saul, I could have killed you again. Right? He said, where's your spear at, bro? I got it. <laughs> Read the Bible. I'm not joking. He said, send someone to come and get your spear. And then again, like, like between these two attempts, 
that the opportunities David has, like Saul has not relented in pursuing David to try to kill him. And David has this opportunity twice to kill him. And both times he shows mercy. And both times he says, how could I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? And both times he says, Saul, could have killed you, bro. Leave me alone. And both times Saul encourages him again. It just shows like how empty, how much of a shell of a man Saul has become. You're going to get the kingdom, bro. He knows. He's like so defeated in his own mind and in his heart. Finally, Saul leaves David alone. Later on, in, the, in this same kind of 10-chapter window, Saul goes to a medium for guidance. You know, his, his uh, relationship with God is so, like, gone to the point where he's not even, like, he's so lost, and his first thought isn't to try to pray. His first thought is to try to go to somebody, you know what I mean, that can counsel him. He goes to a medium, which is like, I don't know, like a psychic or something, you know, like, you know, those people you go by, they have all the neon lights in their windows so they can read your palms and it says something about you. Like, that was an outrage, totally like against anything, you know, of the God of Israel. It was witchcraft in every degree, you know. And um, in chapter 30, I'm not going to go into the whole chapter. We're going to pick back up in 31 if you want to flip there. But chapter 30, the last point I kind of want to touch on is uh, God commissions David to destroy the Amalekites. You know you're in trouble when God commissions someone else to do what he told you to do. We're at the end here of this tragic story of Saul, you know, who was this once great man of God. And he's to been totally emptied of himself, totally humiliated in every level. David has surpassed him by leagues and leagues. And in chapter 31, we see the Israelites fighting the Philistines again. And I know we've covered a lot, and, like, you guys are official for staying with me here. But it's all going to come together. Saul is fighting the Philistines. And in verse 3, it says, The fighting grew so fierce around Saul that when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Later on, in chapter, in verse 4, towards the end of verse 4, he fell on his own sword. He committed, he tried to commit suicide. He was already, like, critically wounded, so he decides, listen, I'm just going to put an end to this, and he takes his own life. And then, bringing us to the, I guess, to the climax of our message here, in the next book, Second Samuel. In the first chapter. You know, a lot of people look at this and it's like a controversial statement because in the previous account it says that, you know, Saul fell on his sword, his armor bearer saw that he died, and then the armor bearer fell on his sword, and then the Philistines came and they cut Saul's head off and they said, Look, we killed him, da 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 da. But I just find it strange that this account would come to David in Second Samuel. This young man, an Amalekite, comes to David with dust on his head and his clothes torn, which is like a, a sign of mourning in the Jewish culture. When they would mourn the dead, they would tear their clothes, they would put dust on their head. And he comes to David and says, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asks him, who are you? Second Samuel chapter 1, you could look for yourself. He says, an Amalekite. The Amalekite goes on to share his account of the story. He saw Saul there. And Saul called out to him. 
said, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him, and I killed him. So here we have these two accounts, but what, for our intents and purposes today, I want to I wanna just believe that this is the truth, because I don't see why, it doesn't make any sense to me why the Amalekite would bring this report to David out of a place of dishonesty. Because he tells David, I saw Saul, he, was, he fell on his sword, he was dying, and I just put him out of his misery. And he grabs his crown, and he grabs his bands off of his arm and says, look, this is my proof, you know what I mean? Saul's dead, right? And forgiving this account, David kills the Amalekite. So why would he lie? Like, why wouldn't he say, like, you know, they, Saul died, man, I saw it all happen. I, I went into his body, here's his crown. Like, why would he say that he was the one that killed him? Like, he's only jamming himself up, you know what I mean? It's like confessing to the crime that he did. So it doesn't make sense to me. So for, for our intents and purposes today, we're going to believe that the account in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is what happened. And if that's, if, that, if that's what we're sticking with today, there's a grave, grave revelation in that. After all of Saul's running and unraveling, how humiliated he must have felt, right? Just emptied of himself. And when he's sitting there, he can't even manage to kill himself, right? What happens? Who comes up to him? An Amalekite. The people that God told Saul to completely destroy. If he had obeyed in that moment, he probably wouldn't have been in that situation. You know, God gave him another chance after he offered the sacrifice. I mean, it may, he made it clear to him his kingdom wasn't going to endure, like, you know, but at least he could have ended his reign in honor, right? But because he disobeyed again after receiving that mercy, God brings him this bitter reminder at the end of his life. And the very thing that God instructed him to be rid of came back around and what was ultimately what did him in. It's tragic. Tragic ending to our story here. You know, jealousy opened Saul up to offense, which opened up to him losing his calling, losing his relationship with God, losing his mind, and losing his legacy. David wasn't perfect. And if you guys know the Bible well enough, you know later on in his life, he went and made some horrible decisions of his own. You can come up, Greg, if you want. He made some horrible decisions of his own, you know. But in this particular account, we're given these two sides of the story where Saul acted horribly. And David conducted himself as a man after God's own heart. So we saw in the life of Saul what not to do, right? We saw where his actions, where his personal ambitions, where his irreverence for the things of God led him. And we saw how David conducted himself with honor and was, was preserved from everything that this guy tried to do. I mean, he devoted his whole life to try to kill him because God was with him. Everything that he did, it didn't amount to anything. It ended with him falling on his sword and an Amalekite coming to kill him. Right? 
So I want to look to David's example. Because through his life and through the points I mentioned to you guys about what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart, we can really step into flourishing. We can flourish in our relationships by being men after God's own heart. Like I shared with you the last time, when this is right, all this has a way of working itself out. When our relationship with God is right, everything else, all of the concerns of our life, all of the desires of our life, all of the relationships that we have, have a way of working themselves out. And we see it firsthand here in this account. We see Saul, a guy who, he was after his own ambitions. And I know I've been there. I've tried to do things, you know, apart from the Lord. I've tried to follow my own heart. And guess where that landed me? In a red chair in 416 Clinton Avenue. (laughs) So I want to close our time together and pray that uh, that God would would birth the desire in us to want to be men after his own heart. Come on, lead me to your heart, like Greg was singing. Lead us to your heart, God. Because of us, of our own hearts, what does the Bible say about our own hearts? That is deceitfully wicked and cannot be trusted. Am I alone in this pursuit and this desire to want to just reach a place of flourishing? to want to see this being lived out here. Am I alone in that? So can we we stand together as we close out this service? 